This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with natural, non-toxic, medical-grade ingredients. So, Bree, I remember this one time I was in a bike race around Tucson, and uh, I wasn't paying attention. We were riding down 4th Avenue, and there's railroad tracks, like street track tracks, and my bike's tire like went and wedged in to the railroad tracks, no. and I totally fell down and just like skinned my hands, everything. Ugh. I had nothing with me, nothing at all. And it's that times where you want a first aid product and you have nothing. And <laughs> active skin repair utilizes a molecule called hypochlorous acid. When applied to the skin, the molecule works by mimicking the natural immune response to cleanse, soothe irritation, reduce inflammation, and support healing. I've used it on my son's mosquito bites, and I wish I would have had it the time I totally scraped up my hands. Oh, I hear you. Like whenever I go paddleboarding, kayaking, I'm always trying to find something that is like an all-in-one that I can take with me. And active skin repair could be used like that. It can be used to treat cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, and other types of skin damage. It's also safe and non-toxic, which makes it suitable for all skin types, all parts of the body, like eczema and acne-prone skin, all of that. With over 500,000 happy customers, thousands of five-star reviews, and ingredients so safe and clean they can be used from the youngest member of the family to the oldest, you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about Active Skin Repair and to get 20% off your order. Use code NOGUILT. Welcome to the No Guilt Mom podcast. I am your host, Joanne Crone, and I am joined here by my amazing co-host, Brie Tucker. Hello, hello, everybody. How are you? We hope that you are doing well and staying healthy. Yes. With all this COVID nonsense going on, and maybe your kids are going back to school, like our kids went back to school, and you're dealing with all of the stuff that comes along with that. Oh, you mean like when a cold makes you freak out that they might have COVID? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That was me this weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So we today are talking with author Jessica Leahy. And this was such an exciting interview for us to do. I mean, when when Brie texted me that we were doing this interview with Jessica, I screamed in my car. It was... (laughs) <laughs> and it scared your son. He was like, oh my it gosh, scared mom. my son. Like, free texted. She's like, Jessica's agreed to do the interview. And I'm like, ah! <laughs> because her book, she's a phenomenal person. It was just one of the most fun interviews we have done. Uh, we want to induct her into our No Guilt Mom Girl Squad. Yes. She's amazing. If you haven't heard of Jessica, she's the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Gift of Failure, and the forthcoming The Addiction Inoculation, which is due April 2021. And what Jessica does is she writes and researches about the confluence of education and parenting. So how we could take those uh, strategies and skills from education and how we can apply them best as parents. That's what I loved in The Gift of Failure. She lives just outside of Boston. She's from just outside Boston, lives near Burlington, Vermont. And uh, she also has a podcast about writing for Mm. all of you future authors out there. You want to check it out. It's the hashtag AmWritingPodcast. And without further ado, we are brought to you today by our upcoming The Civ Journal. Now, Civ, it is an acronym. It stands for Siblings Interacting Boldly. And 
it helps to solve one big problem in your home. So like Brie, do your kids fight? Pretty sure they eat and breathe. So yeah, they fight. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's normal for siblings to fight. Like my kids fight as well, but are they fighting fair? Do they know how to solve the problem they're fighting about? Or does it turn into like things flying across the room and people screaming at each other? They There's a lot of yelling. We don't have a lot of throwing and things flying through the air at this moment we have in the past. But what we have a big problem with is not being respectful. Mm-hmm. And That's I a think huge issue. kids need to be consciously taught those skills. It's they not do. something that they know from the get-go. But so many parents, like myself included, I had no idea how to even start. Mm-hmm. And that is what the Sib Journal does. It is a fun journal for kids that teaches them all about their emotions, how to name their emotions, and then how to communicate those emotions to other people and solve problems. And we focus on the siblings. Which is one of the most important relationships that they have. And it's one of the best people to practice it with, right? Definitely. It's a safe environment at home and everything that they learn with their siblings, they can take and use with other people. The Sib Journal comes out the last week of October. Until then, make sure you go and grab our free sibling adventure log, which are missions that your kids can do together and have fun with each other and really improve that sibling relationship by doing something enjoyable. And you can grab the sibling adventure log through our link on the show notes. You want mom life to be easier. That's our goal too. Our mission is to raise more self-sufficient and independent kids, and we're going to have fun doing it. We're going to help you delegate and step back. Each episode, we'll tackle strategies for positive discipline, making our kids more responsible and making our lives better in the process. Welcome to the No Guilt Mom Podcast. I'm covered with paint. I was, I'm painting after two and a half years of swearing that I would do it. I'm painting my back deck. We only moved in two and a half years ago and I said I was going to do it then and I haven't done it yet. Oh, please. But- I, I have tons of those lists in my house. I've been there two years and like there's little patches. I got scuffed. We moved in with the furniture and I'm like, oh, I'll fix that. Yeah. The gallon of paint yeah. is still sitting in the garage. So we've had our first frost here in Vermont. So my timeline on being able to get stuff done is closing very quickly. So uh, you can't paint when it's below 55 and it just doesn't get much above 55 from here on out. So I'm rushing to figure out everything else. Yeah. Well, here in Arizona, we're like, we're entering the time of year uh, where we yes. actually get to do stuff outside. So yeah, we're like, like, woohoo. Yeah. I, I get to work today because it's 100 degrees. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so jealous that you guys get to podcast together because I used to podcast. I used to live down the street from my co-host on the M Writing Podcast and I moved to Vermont. And so now we have to Skype it. And, you know, every once in a while I drive the two hours to go be with them when we record because it's just not the same. There is a certain energy. There's a certain energy when you're in the room together. Definitely. Yeah, we used to... We used to live just like a few blocks yeah, like away, a mile from, each away other. from each other. Yeah. And then I moved to just one suburb over. So mm-hmm. I'm like 20 minutes away. So this is yeah. way, and we agree. Like we tried doing one or two one, like in separate rooms, other things. And yeah, it was, oh God, it wasn't yes, good. it was. Yeah. It wasn't good. Yeah. It, it was good. hard. No. So no, it wasn't good. Yeah. 
Well, I have tons of questions to ask you and I want to ask you in a chronological way. So I like have to put back the things I really want to talk about until a little bit later. So tell me like where you grew up in Boston. And so I actually grew up outside of Boston in outside of Boston. sort of the like Metro West area, sort of out near. I grew up in a town, Sherburne, which is sort of like Wellesley, Natick, Framingham area. And it used to be like all farms. And now it's weird McMansion houses. It's very strange. Yeah. Farmland that's now not farmland anymore. And I was listening to another podcast that you had an interview on. And you described yourself as kind of a writer who fell into being a teacher. Yeah, I actually, it wasn't even the, I mean, I've always been a writer, yes, but I was in law school to work in juvenile court in North Carolina. That was the goal. I had a mentor. I had sort of a, we had a job plan, like she was going to move up to this other thing and I was going to take her job in juvenile court. It was all sort of set. And then I was asked to teach over a summer and I just fell so in love with it that it was completely obvious that I was supposed to be doing that. And that was when I was pregnant with my first kid who's about to be 22. So I sort of became a mom and a teacher at the same time, which has worked out really nicely for me. And when you were a teacher and a mom, how did being a parent affect what you did in the classroom? It's the weirdest thing when I go. So I do a ton of professional development for teachers. Like I'll go to a school and I'll talk to the students during the day. And then I'll talk to the teachers in the afternoon and I'll talk to the parents in the evening. And inevitably, I always say to the teachers, look, I know many of us in this room are parents and there's this weird wall in our brains between our teacher life and our parent life. And a lot of the stuff that we do naturally as teachers would make for really great parenting if it would just occur to us that these are things (laughs) that you can actually bring home with you. Like it would never occur to me to say to one of my students, oh, forget it. You know, I'll just give you all the answers. That'll be easier for all yeah, of us. No, you know, don't do that. No. <laughs> no. Okay. Or, yes, you know, all the time. or watching them struggle, you know, part of yeah. watching them struggle and sort of helping them lead them toward the answer, to figuring out the answer themselves. Like that's what I do with my students. And you would think like, oh, she must be really good. She must do that all the time with her kids. And then in Gift of Failure, I also talked a lot about some of the stuff I did as an advisor, not just as a teacher, but as a like a kid's advisor, you know, doing goals and working towards short-term achievable goals and having long-term goals and helping build their executive function by helping them see how the short-term achievable. None of these things occurred to me as a parent. I'm like, I don't know what my problem is. So, and I hear that from a lot of other teachers. They say like, wow, you're right. All these things that I'm doing at school that work really great for learning, I don't know what my problem is. And it's because I think because we're just too emotionally involved and it's too hard to watch our kids get frustrated. And it seems like an indictment and they're worried. we don't want them to be mad at us and you know all that other stuff. Yeah. So, well, yeah. That, yeah, and it's also the whole like, I know how to do this. Why am I struggling? Like I run into that all the time with that mom girl because my background's early childhood. So I, mm-hmm. I run into that all the time of just that, I know what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah. Why are the words <laughs> not coming out of my mouth the right way? Or what did I do wrong that yeah. you're not just yeah. naturally picking it all yeah. up? Well, right. Why? Because I didn't well, and teach you. <laughs> as I'm researching that stuff and learning it, then there's this added layer of my kids are getting old enough where they're like, can you stop with the gift of failure stuff? And just <laughs> you know, there's they that added right layer. It. Yeah. So they for do. me, it's yeah. important for me to have other authors that I admire and look to and other experts. So I have a group of parenting educators that are friends and colleagues and trusted 
you know, I can go to them and I can say, I know I'm supposed to be the expert on this, but I need some help. <laughs> I go through that all, right? all yeah. the time. Like yeah. I literally, I wrote a book on homework and helping kids do homework at home <laughs> because I used to yeah. be a teacher just like you and that yeah. emotional connection is strong. But then you see your kid crying on the floor, having a tantrum over homework. You're like, what happened? <laughs> I know. Well, it's different. It's just different. You're so, the emotional engagement is so, the emotional involvement, the whole, you know, we take our validation from their successes, blah, 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 all that stuff just gets in the way. Yeah. Hey, all, it is Joanne and Brie here. And we want to tell you about a podcast that you should check out. It's called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Uturbe. And it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. And in this latest season of Understood Explains, it covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP and it busts common myths about special education. We actually just listened to the episode, IEPs, Does My Child Need an IEP? And here is what we loved about it. I loved that it was so digestible. Like it was such a short episode and all of the topics, which could be really confusing to parents, were easily explained. And I loved how they gave great concrete examples because you know how much I love me a good example. They explained what kind of services and supports you could actually see on a child's IEP or individual education plan. And they explained those acronyms that nothing drives me more crazy than when there's acronyms and I don't get it. I don't know what it stands for. They took the time to explain everything in so much detail and to cover concerns that a lot of families have about special ed services. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains, or just click on the link in our show notes. Shout out to Clarendon for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. Hey guys, Brie here. And let me tell you, April is a killer time of the year for me because it is crazy allergy season. I swear, everything that is in bloom looks fantastic and beautiful, but it makes it so I can't breathe. I am literally coughing, sneezing, rubbing my nose. I look like Rudolph half of the spring. It's terrible. But luckily for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies like I do, we live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so you can finally breathe better. This double action combination of prescription strength allergy medicine is the best decongestant available. It relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy, watery eyes, itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. I absolutely love it. It is the only allergy medicine that works for me. So if you're ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just one quick trip away. Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Yeah. Yeah. It gets very, very hard as a parent. And like talking with parents, I feel like that is really what gets in the way of helping our kids be more self-reliant is that emotional pull that our kids have on us. And so for me, often when I'm talking to parents, I have to walk this really you know, very narrow line, very thin line where I say, you know, I have to give them the information. I have to poke a little bit so they'll start thinking about the things they do, but, and give them the research. But also I can't 
you know, I don't want to make anyone defensive. I don't want to get anyone upset because you don't hear very well. You know, the tools I know as a teacher is the minute, if, if you want to interrupt learning, just introduce stress. So I have to keep sort of the anxiety and stress level at a certain place. And so I have to be funny and I have to make jokes. It's a whole tightrope thing. And, you know, a lot of that comes from the fact that I know what works and doesn't work for learning. And so if you watch me on stage, I do, teachers call me on it. Teachers are like, I saw you do that visual learning thing on the stage where there are certain places on the stage where I talk about certain concepts. And so if I'm going to come back to a certain concept, I move to that place on the stage so that people are getting certain cues for certain pieces of knowledge. And then to bring it all together, I move back to the center and bring those disparate ideas together. And that's something that's a teaching tool. And it works well for learning because it engages various parts of the brain. So the teacher side of me, I need to fulfill both of those things when it comes to my life and my kids. And so, you know, I think the kids are just grateful that I have some other outlet for the teaching stuff. Otherwise they would get the full blast and they would, they would never speak to me ever again. Isn't it funny though, how your kids just start calling you on like all the psychology and all the stuff yeah. that you do? Cause my kids do it as oh. well. Oh yeah. Yeah. It yeah. gets, it's yeah. I see really what you're funny. doing there. I see, I oh, see yeah. what you're yeah. doing. Yeah. My there. daughter's favorite, <laughs> favorite thing is stop it with the breathing. The breathing doesn't calm me down. <laughs> there are like six different techniques because she's very emotional like her mom. She's very much like me. Yeah. So, yeah. So like knowing that like parents, we have like the this emotional connection to our kids. And when we see our kids be so frustrated, it's hard to just step back and use those tools. So like, how can we get our kids to sit more with that frustration that they feel when they're doing something yeah, hard. So there's two different ways to come at this. First, let me explain that kids of highly... Let's put up two different kinds of parents. There are directive parents. In the research, they're also called controlling parents, but I use the word directive. It goes down nicer, I think. Um, and then, think. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> and then autonomy supportive parents. And autonomy supportive parents, you know, support kids' ability to make their own choices. You know, I make the joke all the time that when you have a toddler, you don't say, you know, do you want to wear a hat? You say, would you like to wear the red hat or the blue hat in order to get by it? Okay. So it turns out that according to Wendy Grolnick, who has done a bunch of research on this, that kids of directive parents, of parents who are constantly just giving them each step-by-step, step, you know, first do this, then do that. No, 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 don't ask questions, just do this. Those kids are less likely when their parents are not around to be able to complete tasks that are challenging for them because they don't exercise that muscle of knowing what it's like to feel frustrated and deal with it and push through it and finish the task. Whereas kids who have autonomy supportive parents are a lot more likely to have had that opportunity to wrestle with frustration and therefore a lot more likely to, like way more likely to finish tasks on their own. Then I explain that the difference between these two kids, a kid who can be frustrated and a kid who can't, this is huge. These two kids come to my classroom. One is going to be a lot more able to learn and one is going to be a lot more resistant to learning. So the kids who, and that's mainly because one of the most powerful teaching tools I have is this thing called desirable difficulties. And desirable difficulties sort of require you to be able to be frustrated with something and work through it and think about it in a new way. Take some breaths, do a little breathing, you know, think about reread the instructions it's the kids who fall apart and are like, I'm never going to be able to do it ever, ever, and just give up and go boneless and never finish the task. Those kids of directive parents simply don't learn as well as the kids who are able to be frustrated, push through their frustration, and finish tasks because those desirable difficulties are such valuable 
teaching experiences and learning experiences that if their one kid can benefit from them, another kid can't, you know, I've got a very, I've got two very different learning situations in my classroom. So kids who can be frustrated, have that feeling, deal with it, take a breath, push through it and keep trying. Those kids are going to be much better at learning than kids who can't. But just remembering that helps remind me that no, 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 this is valuable. This thing right here that's making me want to vomit and making my kid wanted to freak out, this is a valuable experience in and of itself right now because just, you know, my book's called Gift of Failure, but I don't want kids to fail. I just want them to have a positive adaptive response to the failure when it inevitably happens because it will. No, because failures are really what make you as a person. And I know like as a child myself, I don't think I experienced failure fully until I was an adult, like working at my first job. And that's when I finally had to grapple with it. And I think about that a lot with kids where if the first time they fail is when they move out of the house, like that's not good for them. They don't have any support. They don't have any cushion. So we have our No Guilt Mom mindset. We have like six different mindsets that we talk about. And on our first podcast episode, we were talking about how you know your kids will learn from their mistakes. And Joanne referenced your book. And she was just talking about how she wants her kids to have that. And what'd you say? Like, I want them I to fail. Crushing failure. Crushing failure when they're young in an <laughs> well, elementary right, school. Because it actually yeah. teaches them to move forward. And yeah, I, I definitely see it a lot too with my kids. Like They have had their points. And I think a big one where we see that big struggle too is even just looking at our educational format, moving from like an elementary standpoint to like a junior high standpoint, so mm-hmm. many changes. And you have to sit there and you want to, like you said, like you want to be like, oh, just give me the homework. I'll do it all for you. Right. We'll sit right. down and we'll do it all together. But they have to learn how to do those they things. They have to. Right. So they have to struggle well, while you're still there. And for anyone who's listening, this sounds all like, yeah, kids fail. It's great for them. Now, on the other hand, you know, what I'm talking about here is like this productive failure, the failure that is helping you feel a sense of self-efficacy, a failure that's helping you feel like you're getting something out of it. I told the story the other day of there was this kid I spoke to at a speaking engagement of mine at a school and he had had this art project that was due and he stayed up all night to do it. And it turns out there was a flaw with the assignment. The materials they were given just didn't work great for the assignment. So the kid stayed up all night to sort of figure out a better way to approach the assignment. And The next day, he didn't have a completed version of the assignment that the art teacher wanted, and the art teacher didn't give him full credit for his project. And the kid was like, but look, I did this whole thing where I figured out a better way to do it. And she's like, yeah, but you didn't follow the instructions. But the nice thing about this kid is that he was self-aware enough to know that this adult is a bit of a dork and doesn't get it. And he was so proud of himself when he told me. He was like, finally, there's this adult that I can share this thing with and she'll totally understand that what he experienced was a really productive, valuable experience for him. And that's the kind of failure I'm talking about. And, you know, I spent the last five years of my teaching career were spent teaching in an inpatient drug and alcohol rehab for kids. And the kids that I taught had often had a lot of unproductive failure, like totally non-productive, just beat them down, you know, stuff that there was no value coming out of that experience because they left it feeling even less efficacious, less like they had any control over the situation. And these are the kids that I really worry about because they're not getting any of the support from adults around them in order to help them have hope and see that they can be more competent and capable and all that stuff. So there is a difference between like, you know, just failing over and over and over again because the world is against you and you just can't, you know, and there's systemic stuff going on that's setting you up. But what we're talking about here is productive failure. 
to like differentiate between the two for the audience, what are some examples of unproductive failure? Unproductive failure are times when you don't have any control over changing your situation. And that's what leads to, so for example, if a kid, and I've taught many of these kids who are in a home where there's abuse, a home where if the kid acts and tries to change their environment, it will not lead to any actual change. And what that puts the kid on the road towards is a thing called learned helplessness. They don't have what we call self-efficacy. And that just becomes this self-perpetuating helplessness upon helplessness. And then you get to a point with some of these kids where they feel like, well, why would I bother? I can't change my life. Why would I bother trying in school? I just fail. Why would I bother you know, trying to change my environment? So of course, drugs and alcohol are the best possible option for me because I just want to escape from that. Why would I want to be engaged in my life if everything is going wrong and I can't affect any change. But what we're trying to do, and that's why I talk a lot about the difference between competence and confidence. Competence is one of the things that I talk about a lot because it's confidence based on actual experience, trying something, screwing it up, getting it, changing how you approach it and getting it right in the end and learning from that experience as opposed to confidence, which is just like this, oh, it'll be great because everybody says I'm so smart kind of thing. You know, that sense of competence is what can help rescue kids who feel like there is everything is just hopeless. It turns out that there's some great metadata on learned helplessness data, research on the research out of University of Pennsylvania with Martin Seligman looking at learned helplessness. And Marty Seligman found out that, you know, it looks like Going helpless is sort of our default mode when experiencing long-term hopelessness, long-term pain, long-term suffering. We just sort of roll up in a ball and say, well, forget it. I won't even try. But the way to interrupt that is by giving control back. If you give control, both in the animal models and human models in these research studies, you can help kids gain some sense of power and control and self-efficacy back in their life if you insert them back in the picture and say, look... I will support you if you act. It may possibly change things. And let me show you how to do that. There's a big difference. I think the perspective that some people have when I go and speak somewhere is, oh, you just want kids to screw up. And uh, you know that's not the lesson at all. I got to help write the curriculum for a show for Amazon Prime called The Stinky and Dirty Show. And Stinky and Dirty is that process. It's these two machines, a digger and a dump truck based on the I Stink and I'm Dirty series of books. And they have a task that they have to do and they screw it up and they say, oh, okay, well, that part of it, this part seemed to work, but this part didn't really work. So let's get rid of that. But let's take this with us because I think this part might be useful next time. And then eventually using those tools, they succeed in the end. So, you yeah, know, that's, that's sort wonderful. Of the, the big picture. Yeah, I love that show so yeah. much. I did the last thing I wanted to do was be a part of more screen time for kids. But the person who asked me a part of that show was Alice Wilder, who created Blues Clues. And you don't oh, say no to that. You can't say no to Wilder. that. No. 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 Oh, I love I So, love the kind show. of failure that's good for kids is the ones where, yes, they may fail at first on a task, but then it's under their total control to go and kind of remedy the situation and repair the situation. And they have a say in that. Well, and it's that they have someone who will support them and say, you know what? Yeah, that didn't work. And often the kid's response will be like, oh, I can't learn this or I can't do this math. If you give them the sort of Carol Dweck growth mindset words like yet, 
well, of course you can't do that yet. You just learned how to do this 10 minutes ago, but let's keep trying at this. And, you know, our job, when we talk about homework, for example, our job when a kid is frustrated and wants to just throw the algebra homework out the window is not to reteach all of algebra one. It's to help the kids sit there and say, why don't you explain what you think the instructions are? Or you're stuck on number four. Well, what did you do to get number two right? What happened over here and what lessons from number two can you take to number four? It's that sort of supporting and redirecting that we do as adults, as trusted adults around kids that will help them feel supported and like they have some ability to screw up and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, asking those questions, yeah. encouraging them, yeah. and kind of sitting instead beside of saying them. here, let me do. Yeah, instead of saying here, let me yeah. do that for you. You can say things like, "How can I be of help to you?" Or "Why don't you explain it to me?" Or "I don't remember how to do this. How about you teach me how to do it?" As you, as a teacher, you know this. Half the time, the kids raise their hand and they're like, "I'm stuck. I don't know what I'm doing." And you go over there and they start to explain it to you, and they say, "Oh, never mind. I get it now." And you didn't even do anything except stand there just, and listen. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. <laughs> just you standing there. And the proximity, yeah. you know, whatever it was, like you had that knowledge. They feel like you have that knowledge radiating off. Right. Of you. Nope. You yeah. just had it. It was there in right. your gut. You just needed, you needed somebody to stand near you to push it out, I guess. Yeah. Right. And my experience is teaching older kids. I've never taught the littles. I've only, I've taught grades six to 12, all the grades between six and 12. And with those kids half the time, you're just the sounding board. You're standing there and saying, okay, well, rephrase the instructions for me. What do you think they say? And then half the time they figure it out on their own. Yeah, they do. I was a fifth grade teacher and it was like right at that borderline of yeah. like little kid to the middle school yeah. kid. And so yeah. just being there though with the kids is great. And even with the littles, like uh, as you're describing this math homework, I have flashbacks to last night with my son in math homework. And I feel like I'm very emotionally connected to my son, like more so I feel <laughs> yeah. like his moods affect me more than my daughter. And Uh so sometimes I feel like as a parent, I may not be the best person to help him along in his struggles. I feel like my husband is the best person for that because he is one who steps back and can ask those questions. Yet while Mm -hmm. my mind gets flooded with all of the emotions and seeing my baby cry and stuff that I have to talk myself down from, I feel like a lot of parents struggle with that. So what's like the first thing that parents can do if they get all like, mm-hmm. like when their kids struggle. Yeah. So there are two main takeaways I try to make sure that I give to parents when you know I'm doing a speaking engagement. And that's two things. Number one, you have to think more long-term. You have to think about like, okay, do I, you know fix this for my kid right now? Or do I want my kid to be able to fix it for themselves next time, six months from now, a year from now, whatever. And then the second thing, so because those daily emergencies we have like, oh my gosh, this homework assignment has to get delivered to the school immediately because they left it home. Actually, the bigger, more important lesson might be not delivering it and forcing that conversation to happen between the kid and the teacher and stuff like that. So there's the thinking long-term instead of short-term And then the other one is to focus more on the process and less on the product. And this is especially useful. This is useful for me as a parent, but it's especially useful also for kids that have a lot of anxiety and that sort of perfectionism thing going on because they tend to really spiral over product, 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 product. Why isn't this uh, an A minus? It should have been an A minus instead of B plus. But if our focus is more on the process of either... What are you going to do next time? What did you do here that you're going to leave behind? What did you do here that you're going to take with you? 
you know, did you have a conversation with your teacher, blah, blah, blah. All of that sort of stuff will also help them believe us when we say what we really care about is the learning. Because for the most part, that's not what kids believe we care about. <laughs> yeah, they believe we care about the letters. <laughs> yeah, because well, yeah, we put those letters up on the refrigerator and we freak out and yeah. we get all excited. And then, you know, and we beam with pride. And in the end, what we're doing is exchanging love for performance. And that's an extraordinarily damaging thing to do to kids because the alternative to that is, you know, they bring home a low grade and you're just, you're just silent. And that silence gets translated in the kid's head for the most part as, you know, withdrawal of love in exchange for some unwanted performance. So yeah, process, process, process. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky, wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and, more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests, too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. How important for us as parents is it to model that we value the process in our own <laughs> yeah. work yeah. versus yeah. the product? Because I feel like I am a high achiever. I want to like mm-hmm. bam, 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 bam. And then the next thing yeah. I'm like, bam, 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 bam. Like, so how can we model that better to our well, kids? Well, I'm assuming, no offense, but I'm going to assume that maybe you don't do everything perfectly every single time. No, I mean, I not. hate to even imply, <laughs> but... <laughs> one of the best things we can do is to talk to our kids a lot about what we're dealing with and what we're going through. And if we make a misstep at work, if we make a misstep in a relationship, you know, it's a really great thing to talk about that in front of your kids because part of the process of not only will it help them value, you know, when we're getting all excited about a piece of writing getting accepted somewhere that, you know, you've been rejected four or five times they will be even more excited for you because they've seen you go through that process and learn from all the rejections you got in the first place. But when we're talking to our kids, we seem to not want to share these mistakes we make. I don't know if it's because you know we want them to think we're perfect 
products or whatever, but they know we're not. So why not just model those sort of our growth process and our learning from our mistakes? And honestly, the very first way, the easiest way to do that is if you've been doing too much for your kid and you've been doing the helicopter thing or you've been snow plowing all of the problems out of their way is to say, you know what? I am really sorry. I thought I was doing the best I could do as a parent, but I learned some stuff and I learned how important it's going to be for you to try and make mistakes and be able to figure things out for your own and on your own. And I think I've been underestimating you. And so I learned some stuff and I'm going to try to do better from that stuff I learned. And that process right there is modeling for them what we want to see in them. And, you know, in the book, I talk a lot about setting goals as well, because I said that whole thing about how it worked great with my advisees. If you're setting in our house, when we set goals, we try to make one of our goals a little bit scary. All of us set goals from time to time and like in the new season or whatever. And definitely over summers, we try to set some goals for ourselves. Just, you know, and two of them, usually it's three and two of them, you know, are regular goals, but one of them has to be a little scary. And it's easier for kids to believe us when we say, no, you got to put yourself out there sometimes. And they look at you and they're like, wait, I don't see you ever putting yourself out there. Everything seems so easy for you. Because if you only tell them about your successes, then it is going to look like, you know, every single thing you try is golden and you do perfectly every time. You got to share some of the mistakes and ask them what they they would do. Like engage them in the problem solving around it. I'm loving this. This is something that happens with me and my kids all the time. I'm really big on like, well, mom really messed up on that one. Anybody got any ideas on how we could do (laughs) this better? Well, it's usually that it was my my students actually have pushed me on this a bunch of times. I was asked right after Gift of Failure came out, I was asked to write for Richard Branson's website about my biggest failure, like a failure I learned from. And I told my students what I was going to write about. And they said, that's not your biggest failure. You told us what your biggest failure is. And it's this other thing. And I was going to write about the fact that when I got close to failing my first law school exam, my first instinct was to quit law school. And they're like, no, that's a BS story. Your real story is the one you told us about your book. And the story that I ended up writing for this website scared the bejesus out of me to publish this post because... It was just really scary because when I first wrote The Gift of Failure, I had never written a book before. I'd been a journalist. You know, I write in 1,200 word pieces. So my first draft of The Gift of Failure was so bad that um, my editor called it unpublishable. Oh, man. That That happened to another writer. It happened to Susan Cain of Quiet. Yes. You know that book? Yeah. And it was an amazing book. And it, yeah. Yeah. And he actually wanted to bring in a ghostwriter to help me with organization. And so I begged, begged my editor to share all of the, you know, give me all the feedback, tell me all the stuff. And then I begged for two probationary chapters. I said, please, please, please just let me have two chapters to try to get this right. And then at that point, my book had been delayed anyway, because I'd had a head injury. It was a whole story. So we had some time to do some more in-depth editing. And she let me have two chapters, which turned into four, which turned into me writing the book by myself. But based on an entire notebook full of criticism she gave, and it was so hard to hear all the things I did wrong, but that became the blueprint for the second draft of Gifts to Failure, which became the blueprint for the book I just finished, which is going to be published in April. And I just said, I am not going to make these same mistakes twice. I'm going to learn from this experience and become a better book writer because of this. And so I had this huge checklist of like, okay, don't do these 
250 things. And I sent in the first draft of my new book and it was so clean. She couldn't believe it. She said, oh my gosh, like this book is, there's not a ton that needs to be done here. And that, you know, that's an example of productive failure. That's an example of like really, really screwing things up and then being able to be humble and listen and learn from it. It's that sort of Zen mind, beginner's mind kind of thing. Like, okay, I'm a beginner, teach me. And yeah, so that's what I try to help my students and my kids understand. There are so many things I love about that story and that you shared that story because you know I've read Gift of Failure probably twice now. And I just think it's the most wonderfully put together, well-researched work. And it lays things out in such a logical argument. And it's just like, it looks perfect. It looks amazing. It looks like... Well, tell my editor because a lot, of that, <laughs> a lot of that is due to my editor being such a great editor. Well, that and the fact that you were willing to just pick yourself up and try it again and go with it with everything you had and because it wouldn't exist without you. Well, and uh, the thing is the book would exist because a ghost would have probably helped me and it would have been fine, but there would have been this regret that I didn't learn all I could have from it and it wasn't totally mine. And that's, that's, I think, the big lesson, which is unpublishable or whatever the humiliation is, there's going to be stuff to be learned there. So how do you do that? Let's talk about your next book, The Addiction Inoculation. So what is that book about? So this book, you know, after you write a book that does well, (laughs) there's this real freak out about what you're going to do next. What are we going to follow up with? uh Well, and speaking of Susan Cain, I'm so indebted to her because I went to her one night and I said, you know, we've been friends for a while. And I said, I'm really feeling some pressure to get the next thing started. And she said, why? And I said, because that's what I'm supposed to do, right? And she's like, look, you know, I'm still promoting and talking about quiet. And that's been the focus of my work for longer than it's been since you put out Gift to Failure. And is that still fulfilling to you? And I said, oh yeah, I'm still traveling a lot and still doing all that stuff and blah, blah, blah. So she was wonderful in the sense that she gave me permission to wait until... I now know my process is a lot of reading and a lot of gardening and a lot of walks in the woods to let sort of the ideas percolate. So I actually presented a bunch of ideas to my agent in the five years since Gift of Failure came out and they were all just, eh, fine, whatever. And then in this one glorious moment, like all these ideas came together and I'm like, oh, that's the book. So my story is that I'm an alcoholic. It'll be seven years when the new book comes out. I have six and a half years of sobriety now. And so I have two kids who have a genetic predisposition to substance abuse during their lifetime. I also spent these five years teaching in an inpatient drug and alcohol unit. And I'm constantly thinking of those kids, like, where could that intervention have happened? What could we have possibly controlled, changed, whatever? So I was sort of in search of that elusive question of what can we as parents and educators also control and what can't we control? Like what is looking at all the research out there on everything that could even be tangentially related to substance abuse prevention, what can we do and what can't we do to prevent it? And really I look at it as a set of scales. The more risk you have, the more protection you're going to have to pile on in order to outweigh that risk. So 
it's very much a memoir. There's a lot. It's it's it was scary to write. There's a lot of memoir in there. I was really fortunate to get some beautiful framing stories from people who are now adults but had become abusers of drugs and alcohol during their teenage years, and they shared their stories very honestly and openly with me. And so this book is for parents, it's for educators, it's for coaches. There's a whole chapter in there for schools on the best substance abuse programs and what to look for and what's available out there. There's stuff in there about sports. There's stuff in there about, you know, anything that sort of feeds into that question of what counts as prevention. And really, honestly, what it comes down to is how do we promote social emotional learning and how do we protect kids' mental health and how do we intervene early for some of the things that are the biggest risk factors for substance abuse, like early academic failure, early aggression, you know, things like that that build and build and build on themselves. If we're coming at them, you know, when we're first starting to see evidence of aggression or evidence that a kid is not doing well in school and we're intervening at those times, given that it can be really hard to get interventions for kids. I had to get a little creative in the book and I some school counselors are really helpful. Some of the new substance abuse prevention programs are really heavy now on the stuff that is really in the best SEL programs, social emotional learning programs. So yeah, it's the book I wanted, which is essentially like, okay, I've got these two boys. How do I do everything within my power to raise them to not have to go through what I went through as an alcoholic? So that was the book I wanted and the book I couldn't really find. So, And when is yeah. that coming out? It was supposed to come out in this past summer. And then we decided that this fall, but then we decided the election is not the loveliest time to release a book. <laughs> and then COVID hit. So we're like, oh, thank goodness we didn't do that. So August 6th. Well, it has been so wonderful to chat with you, Jessica. And thank you so it much for taking so, the time because so it's been amazing. Lovely. Yes, so lovely to chat with both of you. I'm so grateful for what you guys are doing and the conversations that you're having. They're really important. Well, thank you. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Talking with Jessica was, I, I just don't have words for it. It was pretty amazing. It was like one of the reasons I started this podcast was to talk with all of these interesting people and authors whose work I find fascinating and just dig into their minds. And I feel like that was like, my dream happening. And Jessica was right up there at the top. It was phenomenal. I just, I really, really loved the conversation. I found that there were so many times, again, the audience can't see us, but I'm sitting there shaking my head yes so that I'm not interrupting her going, yes, yes, uh-huh, yes. We I'm learned like- that in podcast audio that <laughs> if we say yeah, uh-huh, because that's like a skill in like active right. listening. You're like showing that you're paying attention to the other person. But when you're trying to edit audio, oh my gosh, it's not good. Yeah. It's not good. Yeah. So there was just so much. And one of my biggest things that I loved, 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 well, there was two pieces that I really loved from that interview, but I loved how she talked about how we, as parents, we need to think about the long-term versus the short-term. I think so many times, right, we think about the challenges that we're facing today, how to get my child to stop having this tantrum, Mm -hmm. how to get my child to do their homework, instead of thinking about the long-term gains of, okay, if I let my child work through this tantrum and I teach them skills for Mm self-regulation, how much better is that going to be in the long term? Yeah. Right? And if they're struggling with their homework, me stopping everything I'm doing and coming and helping them answer their math problem 
isn't really teaching them in the long term how to do it. It doesn't. And for that, like for our conversation with Jessica, it was so many great reminders for me because even though I was a teacher and I know these things, but it doesn't mean I practice them or I remember to practice them all the time because with our kids, we are emotionally attached to our children. And sometimes like those emotions flood us and we just forget everything. Oh, I think it's 100% true. Like if you work in a field where you do social skills or child development education, yeah, mm-hmm. we sometimes we just want to rip our hair out. We're like, why am I so good at this at work? And then when I come home with my own kids and yeah. you hit it right there and Jessica talked about it too. It's because we're emotionally connected to these ones. We are. And we're emotionally connected to our little munchkins. It's funny because I was sitting by my son. My husband was there too. He was doing his math homework. And I remembered our conversation with Jessica about asking them questions about what they know and what they need to figure out instead of pointing that information out to him. And so I concentrated my questions on those. I'm like, okay, well, what do you know? And he's like, this, this, this. And I'm like, so what's the question? This. And he's like, oh, no, I know how to figure this out now. And he was able to take it from there. And, and you I, wanted to like cheer. I just wanted to be like, be like, yes, <laughs> yes. But you got to keep it on the DL. Yes. As soon as they can. see you cheer too much, then oh they're like, gosh. mom, you're weird. Yeah. <laughs> you, you cannot outwardly celebrate your parenting successes in front of your children. <laughs> Else they will, they, <laughs> they'll be like, nope, I'm going to regress right in front of your eyes. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. But it was just amazing to see his reaction to those questions versus some other questions like I've asked in the past. I'd be like, okay, well, this says that, and I basically would read the problem for him and he would get really angry. And now I see, of course, he would get really angry because that stuff is in front of him. He could figure it out himself. Right. That's not helping me. Right. It's not helping. And you know what? That's a lot of how I would do it when my daughter was having trouble with math. And now I can kind of see why that was maybe a little more difficult. Yeah. So I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. I loved it. And if you have not yet if you've not yet read The Gift of Failure, go get it. Go get it. Like, it's amazing. It's definitely one that needs to be in your library for sure. Yes. Also, little reminders here. I'm like, if you haven't done this, if you haven't done this, if you haven't done I'm, I'm like, today. Well, this one's a quick one. This one's an easy do. This one's an easy do. Hit subscribe yes. on that podcast button. We publish new episodes every Tuesday and Thursday. And when you hit subscribe, they will be delivered to you right there. So you do not miss a No Guilt Mom episode. And if you have a few minutes, we also love it if you could rate and review us. We love the reviews in particular. Yes. Yes. There are our warm, fuzzy virtual hugs right now. Yes. So we always, if we remember, pick a review to read. And we found, yes. And, and we, we remember I keep refreshing remembered. my phone so I don't lose it. I'm like, here it is, here it is, here it is. Yes. This one is from Heather Murphy. And she says, I appreciate that Joanne has ideas I can relate to. As a mom of only one child, it is hard to remember that my life shouldn't revolve around them 24-7. It's encouraging to hear other women with ideas similar to my own when it comes to children. And I look forward to being assured not doing it all is actually good for my child. And I think, yes, Heather, you get a hug. Yes. Yes. And this episode, I hope that it showed you that not doing it all is the best thing for your child. So until next time, remember the best mom is a happy mom. Take care of you. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for stopping by. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? 
This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us.